Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. After a lengthy and successful tenure on the risk-taking side in equity volatility, Henry Schwartz decided the U.S. listed options community would benefit from technology that made reading the tape easier. In 2005, he launched TradeAlert, a fintech innovation that does just that. Nearly 15 years later, TradeAlert is a tool employed by buy-side and sell-side market participants who value the functionality in piecing together the continuous and often complex flow within the U.S. options market. My conversation with Henry is a meaningful retrospective on the changes in the derivatives markets that have resulted from technology. We look back to an era gone by, pre-ETFs, pre-electronic trading, and before options were duly listed. Henry shares his perspective on the evolution and growth of the marketplace and the key events that led to the proliferation of exchanges, different fee structures, and new types of investors. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my discussion with Henry Schwartz. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Henry Schwartz. He is the founder and president of Trade Alert LLC. Henry, you've joined us here in the office on a day that it's not raining. It's a tail risk event. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Really interesting company you've created in the fintech space. You know, most of my podcasts here are done with hedge fund CIOs and we talk a lot of market history and talk a lot of vol. But in your case, you're company's innovation here is is so much in the backyard of my own space in equity derivatives, and you've done something so interesting. I wanted to have you in here and talk about the founding of TradeAlert. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of your company and what you've done here, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into the market side of things? How did you develop your craft, so to speak, on the volatility side? Sure. Went to University of San Diego or University of California, San Diego, and at the end of that, I was either going to go to law school or go look for a job. And I happened to know Blair Hull because uh, his kids had grown up in the same town that I did. And I asked him for a summer job. And he said, yeah, you can come to Chicago. And that turned into a full-time job on the floor of the SIBO. And it was an exciting time because this was in the late 80s. Pit trading was still a thing. What's kind of funny is I went into their trading assistant program, their market making program, and I was the only person they'd ever had who after a year said, what if I wanted to switch over to the development side? Because they used to have developers that would say, hey, I want to trade. But I was the first guy to ask the question, what if I wanted to program? And they said, nobody ever does that. And then I realized what developers were paid versus what traders were paid. And I said, okay, I guess I'll stay on the trading side. But it's funny because if you fast forward to 25, 30 years later, I did go from the trading side to the software side. My career on the trading side was market making for Hull for five or six years in, in the U.S. and also in Frankfurt. And Frankfurt was an electronic exchange. So that was where it became very clear that this made a lot more sense if you could let the computers do it. And then I traded index products at Solomon Brothers after that for a few years. That's when OEX was still the main index. And then worked with you at B of A and was brought in there to set up for the electronic market making because this was in, at that point, it was 99 and the ISE was in formation and getting ready to launch in 2000. So that was my big circle. A start in the business under Blair Hull, obviously a deeply impactful name in the derivatives markets in general. What was that experience like as you came into the industry? What were some of the tenants, so to speak, that you developed 
under his guidance. It's funny, I just had dinner with him a couple weeks ago in, in Miami where he and Tom Petterfee did a panel, which was great. He was a pure market maker, kind of from the days where you came up with your valuation and you made a two-sided market no matter what. And I mean, you would get fired for basically trying to take a position because you, you believed something was going to happen. And so this risk-neutral and managing risk framework, but not taking a view, is kind of the foundation of everything I did. Worked really well in the index side. Doesn't work as well in the single stock side. So, and I don't think it works as well today. Okay, this made sense when kind of structurally market makers were intermediaries that were needed and there was enough edge in a trade. You really could buy on the bid, sell on the offer, and all you had to do was hedge in the middle or sometimes it was so busy that you didn't hedge. So a neutral view is probably one of the strongest beliefs that I, I got out of working with him and applying technology to, to get an edge. I mean, that really was what they were all about. You know, they were, although if you hear Petterfee and Blair talking, there was a competition about who was really first with screens and who invented what. But taking what data was out there and trying to, to harness it to be ahead of the guy standing next to you was what they were all about. And nowadays, where we're taking a much bigger stream of data, but really trying to do the same thing, organize it into something that makes sense and gives you a little bit of an advantage is what we do. So I think that's the biggest thing. You mentioned getting started in the 80s. Were you in the industry and in the derivatives markets during the 87 crash, or was it after that? My first summer was summer of 87, and I was a runner, running around the SIBO floor. I had no idea what anything was. But what's funny is I got back to college. It was my last year. And around October 16th, I got a bonus check for my summer job. It was like $2,000. I was like, holy cow, I'm a college kid. I didn't expect anything. And I'm looking at this check and my roommate is like, hey, you should look at the TV. And I look at the TV and it's Black Monday. The market is limit down, nothing's trading. And I look at the check and I, they're going to be bankrupt. And so I go to the bank and I cash it for cash, thinking like if I deposit it, it's going to bounce. So I watched it happen. And I've heard firsthand from the people that were working with Blair, kind of what that was all about from the market making side. There's some really interesting stories. You're talking about things happening when risk modeling was barely even kind of companies like Hull and Timber Hill were using Black-Scholes models to kind of look at their risk, right? The clearing firms barely had a handle on it. They would call the market maker and say, hey, um, you guys are okay? Are you still in business? And because that's one of the reasons that expiration is on a Saturday is because it took all weekend to clear the trades, right? So things moved so slowly back then that futures being limit down, going down 15%, the clearing firms didn't really know who was in business and who wasn't in business. So it was kind of a wild time. I watched it. I traded through 89, which was a little bit of a crash, and through some of the other dislocations. But it's always been interesting. Anything stand out during the the 90s from a risk standpoint when you were running running risk? Of course, we had kind of the surprise Fed tightenings in 94, a bit more of a bond market event. You had, of course, LTCM. That was a big one in 98. And then the tech bubble, right? Were you running risk during that period? Yeah, I was trading all the way through 05. So I've seen things evolve from when I was at, at Solomon at the beginning, they would run our PNL on Friday. So the guy was working with, if we had a really bad Wednesday, because we're running an index book, we tended to be short, some downside. If we had a bad hit on a Wednesday, nobody even knew what your position was until Friday rolled around. I went from Solomon to Bear Stearns, where we could run risk by basically refreshing the model manually. So I've seen things kind of slowly get towards what we really have now, which is real-time risk systems, and that's 
Everybody expects it that way. So I've seen things improve. I've still seen, there's still games that go on in terms of um, people figuring out what models are being used. I don't know. I, I talked to a big shot VIX trader a couple of years ago, and we're talking about some of the ratio spreads. And he explained kind of how some of that was purely for risk management. You know, these big trades that everybody would look at and say, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is what they think is going to happen. He's like, no, we know the modeling that the clearing firm is using, and this is the most efficient way to get that under control. Right. Occasionally, you'll see those trades go up that don't seem to have a lot of economic value to them, but they fit well into solving a risk management. Maybe it's an, an overage from a uh, gamma or vega limit. Certainly have seen those. You and I overlapped during the tech bubble, and then it's sort of unwind that coincided with the uh, accounting crises uh, across Enron and Adelphia and Tyco. There was a kind of a vol blow up at the tail end of 2002. And then there was that very, very lean vol period leading up and into the global financial crisis, which was another interesting period in terms of folks just adding a lot of risk to their books, not just with listed options, but with credit products and so forth. So you left B of A in 2005 and you set sail on your own as an entrepreneur. So tell us about the kind of founding principle or founding idea that you had at TradeAlert, what motivated you to set out and uh, establish this company in equity derivatives, but really a, a financial technology company? Sure. So well, the two motivations, one was I saw that as this market was evolving, right, I had been at B of A to get the ISE market making off the ground. That was exchange number five. And the first time you really had instantaneous electronic trading, and I did see that as I moved from the market making back onto the customer side at B of A, it was getting harder and harder to kind of characterize what the heck was going on when you had five exchanges, you know, and then you had six exchanges. And the other motivation was getting fired from B of A. So I was done with kind of the banking life and took some time and a developer named Bill Sterling, who I'd worked with at Solomon and also at B of A, left a little bit after I did. We sat down, we're like, we still like the business, kind of the only thing we knew and we're like, we should be able to put something together. And we'd always, for years, we'd been working together trying to kind of develop trading tools, right? Think of like the spread-o-matic was one thing we worked on at B of A. It was like, okay, people want to trade spreads. You need to price spreads quickly, right? What's the 60, 70, one by two? And instead of like punching numbers into a calculator, why can't you just click on something and click on something and, and have the system give you everything you need, you know, pricing, Greeks, everything you need to kind of make a decent market? So we settled pretty quickly on this concept of a smart order blotter to help people make sense of what's going on in fragmented markets so that if a sales guy is yelling to a trader, hey, what's happening in, you know, in Microsoft? When orders are fragmented, when you don't have a floor broker you can call and say, hey, what just happened? I mean, in the olden days, they'd tell you, oh, yeah, Goldman Sachs just bought 5,000 straddles. When orders are fragmented, it gets much trickier. There's nobody to call for the ISE. And all the other exchanges, it was pretty clear we're going to be electronic soon enough. So the root of what we do is somewhat common sense. How do you tell if an order is being bought or being sold? Like who's initiating it? There's heuristics. You say, well, gee, did it trade on the bid? It was usually a seller. Did it trade on the offer? Did it trade, you know, was volatility getting bid up or volatility getting crushed? I mean, it's the kind of stuff that traders are watching all day long. And it just was kind of like a natural for us to put together a tool to help people that are still interacting in these markets. Because as much as you can make an electronic market, and now we have a dozen of them, 
but you still have a human being or two on the other end, right? Some client somewhere usually is saying, hey, I want to do this kind of a trade. And somebody has to execute that. And the majority of things nowadays are getting routed through smart order routers, and that's a whole business of its own. But making sense of it for people that still have to kind of interpret what's going on is a need. And it's a need that even systems like Bloomberg never really got into because it takes a lot. It's a specialty, and there's a lot of funky, esoteric parts. Okay, well, the Philly does things this way. But Arca would execute the same kind of exchange, same kind of trade, but might look a little bit differently. So once you kind of understand all that, you just put it into practice and became a tool. I mean, within we started around the middle of 2005, and by the end of the year, we had one account on the Amex floor that was like, yeah, this will make us faster. That goes back to kind of the whole thing. It's like use technology to get yourself a little bit of an edge over the next guy and keep on rolling. So if we um, go back even before you founded Trade Alert and go back to maybe the turn of the century around 2000 or so. It's my recollection that there was no electronic trading system sitting on a client or a broker dealer's desk. In other words, if I saw a specific strike out there in an underlying and I thought the price was right and I went to go buy it, I had to call the exchange, call my broker, ask him to interact with the folks physically in some pit and uh, go to try to buy it. And more often than not, if the price was right, there would be a fading of that. You wouldn't be able to get it. What was the innovation that allowed electronic trading to begin? When do you remember that happening? When was it the time when I could actually, I had a system on my desk that could go take liquidity from the market in an electronic fashion? What's your remembrance of that? Well, I'll give you a quick story that it's when I realized how the market worked, which was when I was with Hull on one of the exchanges, I'm not going to mention which, but I remember standing in there and I was a clerk and some broker came in, it was a telephone crowd and asked for a quote on something. And I looked at our screens. I'm like, oh, we have that thing worth a dollar, right? So at the time, things were eighths, right? So like I said, I wasn't even on a badge, so I couldn't say it, but I know the trader I was with said, you know, seven eighths and eighth. And the broker just kind of looked around and said, I think it's higher. And everybody said, one to a quarter. And he said, I think it's higher. And everybody's like, one and an eighth, three eighths. And I'm like, yeah, but we're at one and an eighth. And then he's like, okay, buy 500. And I was like, why didn't he buy some at one and an eighth and one and a quarter? And it was when I realized, and this was before firm quotes and before the ISE, and it's kind of when I realized like, the brokers have to have a working relationship with the crowd and they're representing their customer. And I'm not saying that was necessarily crooked. I mean, that might've been the price that got the guy the trade, but it was kind of clearly inefficient, right? Even if, no matter what you say, he should have bought some cheaper and then finished up with what he needed. SIBO had a system called RAISE, Retail Automated Execution System. It was like SOS on NASDAQ. And that was the very beginnings of giving people an instantaneous execution, but it was very limited in the number of options that were eligible. You had to be a retail account to use it. Amex had something similar, and it really was the ISC starting up where the screens were the quotes, where there was no chance that you couldn't buy the 300 that were shown at that price if you were the one that hit the button. So the ISC, you know, I do these state of the industry speeches at industry conferences, and the growth in volume after 2000, when you did have the dot-com bubble imploding, so the market was very, very active, but you also had the ISE coming onto the scene, which did force all the other exchanges to 
either expand their raise system so people had more access to quotes, you know, to firm quotes, or to start up their own electronic exchanges. And so around 2001, that's, I mean, the ISC launched in May of 2000. And although it was a very dead first six months because nobody was hooked up to it, it was kind of off to the races come 2001. And then you had a lot of other events going on, making the markets kind of crazy. So there was kind of no looking back. Nobody's going to respect a non-firm quote on a screen if you can look at that and say, well, look, there's 300 showing at a dollar. And that was it. And, you know, from then on, it's just kind of steps further in that kind of thing. You mentioned five or six exchanges in the period around which the ISE was born. And now there's many, many more. Just from a, a high level, if you could just try to characterize the growth of the exchanges, there's been obviously some M&A amongst uh, exchanges. How would you take us through the pathway, let's say, since the 2005 period up until now? What have been maybe the major developments? Have there been any tie-ups and linkages that have been critically important I know, and we talked a little bit uh, before we got on about differences in models as well, maker-taker and and others. So what would you kind of summarize as the last 15 years on the exchange side? Not getting into too much of the minutiae, but what have been some of the critical developments as you see it? So, you know, when I started in the business, there were four exchanges, Picos, SIBO, Amex, and Philly had been the exchanges for 25 years without any real competition. Once the ice started, it became clear that it wasn't that big a deal to start a new exchange. You know, it was doable. And the ice, you know, quickly got up to like 35% market share. I mean, it was nuts. And then they got bought by Eurex, and then Eurex sold them to NASDAQ. They actually IPO'd first. So it had been a big success story for the team that started that exchange. Now you have 16 exchanges. The situation you have, it's funny, it's a combination of fragmentation and consolidation because you fragmentation because you have 16 exchanges. You do have consolidation, though, in that there's only six operators, right? And so what's happening is, without getting into the weeds, those two main market models, okay, maker-taker pricing or payment for order flow, have been around. I think Arca started maker-taker. But the reason, you know, payment for order flow grew somewhat naturally out of normal pit trading. And the specialists were like, hey, let's get a pool of money together and we can pay Schwab to send their orders to this pit. Because now when you have four exchanges fighting over order flow and best execution rules apply the whole time, they're like, look, if you don't care where you're going to send it, we're going to pay you a little bit of money to send it here. There's some kind of hair on that whole concept, which is why the other model, maker taker, cropped up because some order flow providers some brokers wouldn't take payment for order flow. Timber Hill or Interactive Brokers is a good example because just saw Petter fee. He hates payment for order flow. He thinks it's crooked. He thinks if a market maker is willing to pay a dollar for an option and he's also willing to give a penny to the order flow provider, why didn't he just pay a dollar one for the option? Okay, that's and he's kind of got a point, right? So Interactive Brokers won't take payment for order flow. In order to make those types of brokers happy, you have maker-taker exchanges where the exchange pricing model basically says, if you're taking liquidity, you're going to pay a fee. But if you're sitting there making liquidity, you post a bid and it gets hit, you actually get credit, you get paid. It's just two different ways to kind of execute the business. And then there's these hybrids that kind of mix some of the features of one with the other. And But what ends up happening is each exchange operator, you know, like Intercontinental Exchange, which owns Arca and Amex is a good example. One's a maker-taker exchange, one's a payment for order flow exchange. Because that way, you're getting the order flow. If somebody like Interactive Broker says, we don't take payment for order flow, they say, oh, well, that's fine. We have a maker-taker exchange. Send it here. 
and you'll naturally get paid for those orders that sit on the book and add liquidity. So you're collecting your commission and you're getting a little bit of credit for those. And in most cases, they're not passing that credit on to the customer. So in the end, it's not really that different than payment for order flow, but it kind of seems a little bit more of an organic, you know, morally, it feels a little bit better, which is why some people are against the payment for order flow. But in the end, every exchange operator, this is the business they're in, they're trying to make every broker happy, right? They've got to make Fidelity and Schwab and E-Trade and, you know, and Ameritrade happy. So they need kind of both models. If you add in that mixed hybrid functionality model, each operator might have three or four exchanges, and that's what you have now. Obviously, a lot of growth on the exchange side. And I think overall growth in the size and volume of the market of U.S. listed equity derivatives. I like to always say that vol and volume are pretty correlated. People trade a lot when things get hairy. So that 2008, 2009 period was quite a bit of volume. Take us through the last decade or so in terms of the growth of the overall marketplace in terms of turnover and transaction volume. What does that look like? We first hit 4 billion contracts a year about 11 years ago. So and in fact, last year, we hit $5 billion for the first time ever, which was almost 20% above the year before. Like I said, volume kind of went exponential after the ISC through, and really from 2000 to about 2005, it was going up 10 12% a year over year. After 08, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the crisis, and if you look at kind of some of the data put together, volume gets big into the big dislocation, 87, 89, and 08. But there is a serious drop-off that happens after that. You know, so like 08, incredibly busy as everything was going on and kind of the risk transfer features of listed options become very, very useful. But then you do get a muted year or two after something like that. I mean, you'll see a 10 or 12% drop-off. Some customers are blowing up. Other people are just too turned off by by that volatility. So, you know, it's funny, there's everybody's always trying to figure out well, what is the sweet spot then? Is it is it VIX at 20? Is it VIX at 30? Last year was a really interesting year because, you know, record-breaking volume, big chunk of that came through the first quarter with the vol apocalypse. Fourth quarter also was very, very active. Some of that activity in the fourth quarter of last year was in, of course, listed options, but really non-equity listed options. Um, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it had to have been a record quarter for HYG in terms of option volume. Again, I don't know that for a fact, but just observing the flows. Yeah, I think you're right. So the growth of the listed options market is not just equity ETFs. Non-traditional ETFs were one of the biggest growth areas for the last couple of years. And HYG, you're, you know, you're exactly right. Also FXI, EEM, you know, like these, these products that are not just US vanilla ETF have seen you know, super strong growth. The volatility products, at least through last year, that seems to have, with some of them imploding and going away, there's a drop off there. Most people think it'll be back. It may take a few years, but they do serve a purpose and they attract a certain kind of trader. This year's volume looks like, for 2019, looks like it's going to be down 7 or 8% over last year. And the last year was up 20%. So it's not that bad to take a little step back. It still looks like it's going to be the second best year on record anyway. But when you look at the market share for kind of what's trading, the indexes and the ETFs are both down. And the single stock volume is looking up year over year. That stat is from before last week. It only takes a couple of shocks where everybody quickly goes into index and ETF because that's, you know, that's where you do your, your macro hedging and your portfolio hedges. But it looks like it'll be the third straight up year for single stock option volume, which is nice because the ETFs and the indexes have just been, you know, that's where all the growth has been for the last five or six years. What is the overall landscape if you were to characterize the volume or open interest by category? How has that changed over the past 
several years. You're pointing to the growth uh, in things like HYG and some of the vol products. Is the center of it still S&P? What's the evolution, for example, of NDX options versus triple Q options? What have you seen there? SPX is still dominates. One of the charts we put out is the market share of the top 100 names. And although you get some motion in there, like you know, this time around, the top 130 products were doing 80% of the, of the listed option volume, okay? Last year, it was about 103. So that's a nice improvement in breadth. However, there's 4,000 things you can trade options on. So you're still talking about 2.5%, 3% of the names doing 80% of the volume. Within that, SPX specifically is, is almost half of the market-wide daily premium. It's enormous. Now, part of that comes from the fact that trades are tied to combos, that you have a lot of continuous rolling of hedges, right? That's a little different than you almost get a little double counting effect. And you do see new indexes cropping up and trying to make their mark. The Amex listed the FANG index, which is those stocks. It's a European cash settled index. Like it, it's kind of, it's got some of the features that people like. I was super bulled up on this index and it's just gone nowhere. I thought, what, what a high powered 10 stock basket. Yeah. You've got everything in the world there. You have this sense that the FANG represents almost its own asset class, that there's a correlation exercise to try to understand there. The stocks have high vol, high volavol, and boy, just very, I mean, very super little. liquid. Like if the components are super liquid, right. can't the index be super liquid? I agree. I thought it was a great idea. I've traded it a couple of times myself, which if you know if you look You're at the, the only one. If you look at the <laughs> I was I was hundred percent market share one day. That was my one lot. And I mean you're gonna see the same kind of thing in the spikes volatility index, right? Like you can have a good product and it's hard to pull the liquidity weights for the markets yes. to look good and it's this, you know, chicken and egg thing. So spikes being the is it Miami Exchange's My, yeah. version of the VIX, which is but linked to SPY options. Right, right. Now, if you read the specs, it's a good index. I mean, you know, everybody kind of knows VIX and there's news stories about weird things happening. And the fact that there's only one quote, a single listed index is the underlying for settlement, creates some potential for issues. Now, the SIBOs actually work pretty hard to kind of pull more people in the whole settlement process. But spikes, you're using a multi-listed product. So quotes are going to be a little bit more honest in terms of it's hard for a spy quote to be wacky because there's way too many people that are going to knock it into the line and you got 16 exchanges to trade it on. So far, it's slow for these other products. I mean, I think that if they stick with it and maybe come up with some incentives, I mean, the SPX and VIX domination, right? That's 99% of the index volume on most days. You know, NASDAQ and Russell, there are days where there's some good stuff going on there. They need to come up with some creative ways to kind of pull some liquidity get some people to play around with. I mean, at NY Fang, I was like, why can't people start putting up some butterflies, boxes or something? I mean, there's trades that are really very benign that this thing's worth a dime, no matter how you slice it. It's like, well, you know what? I can find somebody to trade it for a dime. And that hasn't happened. You know, I think it also goes to show you, it's a small world, the frontline people picking their index products. And so the one thing, you know, the SPX is so liquid and there's so much money trading in that pit, that it really, people have a great trading experience. And every once in a while, you'll hear, you know, that they try to kind of electronify the SPX quotes a little bit, because it's really not an electronic market. 
nobody really wants it to be any different than it is. I mean, end users like the way it is. The liquidity community likes the way that it is. For something else to come along that's more electronically traded, that may not actually be pleasing anybody that's kind of actively using these things. One of the developments that you show in some of your recent work is around average maturity size, which seems like, you tell me if this is correct, but it's been coming down for a while? Yeah, the duration. Yeah, I mean, the weeklies are another huge success story for the industry, right? I mean, they you know, they were only listed five or six years ago. And now you have, most days, 30 or 40% of the volume is in weeklies. Apple, if it trades, you know, an active day trades a million contracts, you can have half of that in three-day options. And it's just continued to climb. I and mean, people love this short duration. I mean, when I was a trader and they, so, so luckily I wasn't trading weeklies, somebody might call and say, hey, uh, I want to buy a put that expires on, on Friday. If I sold it, I guarantee you I, it would blow up on me. It's funny to me because I spent enough time trying to model and dynamically hedge and it kind of all falls apart with these short-term options, right? There's all your assumptions of continuous trading and stuff are out the window if you've got six hours till this thing expires, it doesn't matter. People like to trade it. I've seen trades. I was on the Picos floor standing with a broker and the phone rang and I'm like, you know, what, what's the order? And he's like, oh, I get, you know, 6,000 of these puts that expired today to sell at three cents. I'm like, he's closing? And he's like, no, he's opening. I was like, what? <laughs> Wants to pay for dinner or something. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. And, you know, I think that's me being like old fashioned trader. I, people like to trade them. And the banks obviously have gotten used to handling it. And I guess it's probably like anything, if you have enough two-way flow, it doesn't really matter. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's in such marked contrast to the old days when three to six to nine-month options were more common. And in fact, I remember the early days of the cap structure arbitrage trade on the back of a little mini credit unwind. Again, I mentioned earlier in Adelphia and Tyco and Enron, credit spreads blew out. And we learned very quickly that folks were selling CDS, collecting gigantic premiums, and then just buying out-of-the-money puts, long-dated out-of-the-money puts, very deep downside puts. So we were trading two to three-year leaps when no one was trading them back in 2002. And now, as you say, it's such short-dated options. I wonder if it's a function of our attention span right. as, a, as a society, that the Twitter era? Or is it that the event calendar, the macro event calendar has become so impactful? You see, you can do work around trying to align short dated trades with Fed meetings or ECB meetings, things that just have impact on market prices for a very short period of time. It's certainly the case. And now they're You've got uh, your Wednesday options. There, Monday, Wednesday, Friday weeklies and SPY. I mean, I was at a conference a couple years ago, and there was a, a panel with somebody from an insurance firm, somebody from a market making firm, and I think somebody from an exchange. And there was a little bit of, of a debate about the insurance company was saying that listed liquidity and long dated stuff is garbage. This guy couldn't trade anything longer than a year out, and the market maker said, why would we tighten up these markets on long-dated trades? We might have to inventory for a year right. or two when we can turn our book over you know, every couple of days in the weeklies. I don't know if that's a capital problem. I mean, I think that in the end, it pushes the, the longer-dated stuff into the OTC world. I think it still trades. That side of the data business is so opaque. I wish I had kind of access to real stats on OTC business because we're listed as 
is our data universe and there's a ton of data to work with. I've worked at banks where we traded OTC and it's, but I was at, uh, was at one desk and I always ask, right? Cause I'm kind of trying to make sure I know what's going on. And I said, you know what, you guys doing more OTC, less OTC? Cause flex is another area that I, I'm interested in the listed flex options. And he said, every customer that we clear has an ISDA and is told trade OTC. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we make more money on the trades. Customers happier on the trades. And I was like, okay, I understand it. You know, from being on the sell side, the OTC trades are a little bit less competitive. The credit part of the equation, I don't understand why that's not a concern, but it doesn't seem to be a concern. It's one of the reasons that you have this hundred and something products, which is all the liquidity and the other 3,900 things underlines with options on them don't trade listed is because, you know, I think in an OTC world, many banks are going to stand up and fill in that hole and be very happy about it. You mentioned OTC and and what you can see in the listed versus what you can't see in OTC. And and positioning is this sort of holy grail. It's this elusive concept that everyone's trying to characterize or quantify. It's very, very tough. I think the punditry tends to try to oversimplify positioning. We're told where the market is short gamma or long gamma. I very much struggle with the pinpoint accuracy with which some of these folks claim the positioning shifts because for every trade you can see, we don't know if there's some gigantic corporate pension collar that sits somewhere uh, that was initiated three to four years ago. We'll never see it because it's OTC. We don't see all the alternative risk premium products that are effectively done OTC. And even in the listed world, and this is where I wanted to get your thoughts on trade alert and its functionality, in the listed world, when we see a trade go up, we really struggle unless someone told you this was a spread or this was a strangle. It's difficult to discern who did what. And I find that to be critically important and also something where the strategists on the street are underinvested in understanding exactly what happened. They're pulling data, could be put call ratio data, and I just find it to be incomplete. So on the trade alert side, tell us how you tease out when a large trade goes up, how you're trying to make sense of what actually printed. Right. So our whole purpose is to add transparency to the process, right? And so, like I said, if orders are being shotgunned across all 16 exchanges, you want to use a tool to kind of put it back together and say, okay, what happened? At the very, very bottom level, a trade takes place in between or on one side of a bid offer market. And so what we do is the same for every single trade. We're identifying and saving basically the quote that matches the trade. So if something's quoted 1 to 105 and 2,000 trade at 105, we've snapped that and we can present it together. And then from that point, you can also say, oh, by the way, was the implied volatility going up or going down, right? So you can do a, a simple approach to that. And then the third piece of that puzzle, we use theoretical values that we source from a, a group in Chicago called FT Options, which is a quant from O'Connor put together. And they basically sell valuation as a service, which is kind of wild because like my early days, I mean, Hull was, we had a staff of 50 people working on pricing models. Now it's something you can basically subscribe to and outsource. And, um, you know, some of this stuff is amazingly commodified to make nice, pretty vol curves. You know, you'd, you'd work overnight. And now it's like, oh, by the way, you can get it for free on some brokerage platforms. So from that kind of starting point, you know, so now I can tell you for every single trade, With those three metrics, you can make a very, very good guess on whether it was a buyer or seller. You asked who, there's data that helps you get close to that, right? The 13F filings that come out every quarter, 
in many cases can make it super clear. In hindsight, okay, this traded a, a month ago, 12,000 calls were bought, and then the 13F comes out, and you're like, oh, look, it was XYZ fund. In a way, and then once you have that as a historical, you can say, okay, look, you know, the next time this thing sees a similar size block, right? I mean, people do things more or less the same way. You know who tends to be active. So once you have every single trade basically archived with this estimate of buyer, seller initiated, you can just aggregate everything up and you can track a contract. So, you know, if you see 50,000 puts trade on the offer for a nickel, right, which has happened this morning, and I want to say Ford, I'm not sure though, to be able to instantly say, oh, well, they were sold in two blocks in February for 67 cents and 74 cents. And now they're on the bid. And now they're trading on the offer for a nickel. Of course, it's just a simple liquidation. They made all their money. Works the other way around too. And so it's a piece of functionality that like when I was trading and if a customer started quoting you up on something that maybe you didn't have an inventory, but you saw there was 6,000 contracts of open interest out there, you had to make a little guess. Like, I don't know, the vol's a little cheap in this name, so they're probably a buyer. But then you're like, oh, wait a second, though. There's open interest out there. And the last thing you want to do is kind of bias your market the wrong way. So tracking gamma, you've called it like a gamma well kind of concept, it takes a quantitative approach. But you can do it methodically. And in addition, one of the things that we added in was the spread identification, right? So if you're looking at the tape as a human and you say, oh, gee, 6,000 of the 80s trade and 6,000 of the 90s trade, and it happened at the same second, and one traded on the offer and one traded on the bid, and so the net price between those two is a buck, you'd be, oh, somebody paid a buck for the spread. People do that as much as they can all day long. You do that off of any time and sales system. We just said, well, look, if that's the situation, like there's a somewhat finite universe of complex orders, right? There's flies and condors and rolls and everything else. You can basically say, okay, well, if it looks like this, one trades on the offer, one trades on the bid, this is a vertical being bought. And then not only can you identify that as a package to tell everybody about, but you can keep an accurate count of, look, okay, the 80s were created through a buyer, the 90s were created through a seller. So if stock gets up to 90 and then somebody starts quoting up those, you're like, okay, well... The biggest block of open interest out there was created in the selling leg of this spread. And what do you think they're going to do? So they just made a bunch of money. So, you know, here's my guess. So it's a lot of just, it's just that incremental kind of like, okay, so now we're getting spreads right. Well, what about trades that are tied to stock, right? Which is a, a big piece of the business. And actually in, in the OTC versus listed world, tying trades, one of the reasons OTC trades are preferable in a lot of cases is because there's no impact right? The, you know, the deal between the, the bank and the customer is usually, we've executed the trade, I'm going to tell you where my hedge is net executed, and we've already agreed on the premium is 2% of that. So you get a lot of listed trades that are tied to stock, and some of the new exchanges make that even easier to execute, which is nice. But the same deal, so if a trade's tied to stock, then it's harder to make sense of the time and sales, right? Because it's no longer where the quote was 1 to 105 and some big block prints at 105, you have to double check and say, well, wait, it was tied to stock and the stock was at a different level. So that 105 price is really a $1 price because of where the stock was. And so we're matching that up too. And so basically then we can say, no, you know what? Even though it traded on the offer, what matters is kind of this relative price. So that's a seller. And so it's not perfect. You still have situations where a trade prints dead center in the middle of the market and it's also at exactly theoretical and you're like, I don't know. There's a couple of like final little data sources that can help. Like the ISC publishes a customer sentiment data element, which 
helps only on their order, order flow, so it's, it doesn't help that much. But you put it all together, you do it on you know a million trades a day, which is about what we have on a normal day, and you can track contract and say, okay, well, these things were listed on June 2nd, open interest was added on these three dates, and then it was decreased here. Then when you get a block and you're trying to say, well, what could this be? You can do the best possible guess you're going to be able to make, I guess, is, is the end. Let's shift to bid offer spreads. We saw a pretty big breakdown of bid offer, even in, in the S&P, the base contract around which all liquidity seems to be governed in the Feb 2018 event. How do you and your team at Trade Alert quantify trends in bid offer? How should we think about the spreads and sort of the quality of execution that's typified by a, a different time in the market? How do you right. think about bid offer? Well, this is always a topic at these industry conferences because you know market quality matters and shown quotes matter. You've had a one thing that kind of came about in the last 10 years is auctions, right? You had kind of started out with price improvement, which was something the box when they were new came up with and said, well, look, send us an offer, an order to buy a thousand options for a dollar. And before it executes, we're going to see if anybody will do a better price. And you may get 99 cents. And they tracked how much money they were giving back to the customers. And it was super successful. And that concept of an auction pretty much spread to every exchange. There's a problem with that, though, which is that if you know that there's going to be auctions for all the options, you don't need to quote at a buck to a buck five. Because if it's going to go into an auction anyway, and you're going to sell it at a dollar four, you might as well make your market 80 cents at a dollar 20, because it's going to go into the auction and you're going to have a chance to respond at a dollar four. And so you have the situation now where it's funny, it's one of these things where the data is not super clear because the exchanges actually are, are somewhat tight about how much of their flow is executing in these auctions. We, based on different exchanges and the data we can get at, we think it's 20% or so of the volume is executing in the form of an auction, meaning that the quote's not really coming into play. And so what ends up happening is that the liquidity providers, which have also consolidated, right? So now when I started, there were probably a thousand market makers across all the exchanges. We track the liquidity community through the 13Fs and you're down to a dozen serious market makers, you know, all the ones you've heard of, Susquehanna, Citadel, and it's a little universe, right? And part of that is because how much it costs is how expensive it is to be a market maker when you have 16 exchanges that you need to maintain live quotes on. I mean, it's a gnarly project. A couple of different people have told me that the cost of doing that business is in the $50 million a year range. Okay, so think about it. You got to put in lines to 16 exchanges. You got to have systems that are not going to the disaster potential is huge, right? If you're like, your underlying freezes, you're going to get executed potentially on, there's 900,000 options out there. So 900,000 options times 16 exchanges. It's the amount of risk that you have as when you're sticking your neck out in the form of quote making is insane. And it's why you're down to just a handful of very well capitalized market makers. But when we see this consolidation and you go from hundreds of market makers in a product to to 20 or 30, and now to like six or seven, what's happening to the quotes? And so the quotes are widening out. And for two reasons. One is auctions are kind of incenting that to happen. And with less competition, you don't have some little market maker saying, well, gee, I'll make this thing a nickel wide where everybody else has to compete for that. So this kind of also creates some concerns about these liquidity holes and everything else. So there are, I mean, there's times in, in 
2018, that vol apocalypse at the end of the day, we crunched some data and the way we do it, and there's different ways to kind of skin the cat in terms of tracking quiddity and market quality. We take a pretty simple view, which is just show me the bid offer on every single execution and we can track, we can average that and track it over time. So in a perfect world, I guess you'd probably process every single quote out there, but then you're pulling in a lot of stuff that doesn't trade and is never going to trade and nobody really cares about. So, but for example, SPY, right, which, you know, is, is the dominating ETF. In general, quotes tend to be a couple pennies wide for the, you know, the, the things that are trading, right? In February of 18, we saw things blow out to 60 or 70 cents wide for about eh, 20 minutes at the end of the day. But that's that's horrific. That's untradeable. That's no market. Is there anything that approaches that in terms of the damage to liquidity? I remember the flash crash in May of 2010. That was awful. We were looking at just gigantic bid offers on screens at that time. Is there anything that in your memory of the modern era of trading equity derivatives that uh, approaches that? No, not really. I mean, there's there's dislocations where everybody yanks their quotes and all of a sudden it's a free-for-all. It doesn't last very long. And one thing you could, you know, and nowadays I, it's not so much in valuing options, right? Because the systems are pretty much everybody, you know, off the shelf. You can value options. Estimating the right volatility to value your options or the safe bid offer to price an option, I think, is where you have holes. I haven't seen anything like that. I mean, you see situations, right? I mean, a, a fat finger kind of thing. It happens. Every once in a while, you're like, holy cow, this is 40 cents wrong. Everybody kind of looks around. A couple of people, the bravest guys and girls, jump in, and everything's like, oh, that was what it looked like. So these things happen. What's interesting is, you know, we were talking about kind of the way the year ended up right into December 24th. And like this, does it have a name, that little correction, Santa Claus <laughs> sell-off? But you saw volatility spike there. And then within a couple of weeks, I mean, you know, I've seen some of the, the charts you've pointed out in terms of how quickly volatility reverts. And so some of these dislocations, I feel like it's kind of a similar thing. People have seen it happen and information's getting around so quickly that it doesn't stick around for as long. Then the next one won't, won't be the same as the last one. So I, over the last uh, decade or so, lots of new underlyings, lots of new expirations, certainly better trading technology, access to instantaneous markets and ability to um, access complex order books. As you step back and as you look at the industry called US listed options and maybe specific to your mission at Trade Alert, what would you say are the problems still unsolved? If you were to kind of try to put on your forecasting hat and think about the next 10 years in terms of the services that the end users may have access to that haven't yet been created and the, the sorts of things that you are finding interesting and trying to solve on behalf of your client base, what are some of the things that are on your mind and that your team is in is sort of thinking about? Well, the issue of fragmentation you know, across 16 markets is something that every single conference I go to, there's usually a discussion is, are we too fragmented? 16 exchanges is kind of nuts. That doesn't seem to actually bother any of the end users. And in fact, I mean, I used to walk around and say, okay, hey, you know, by the way, exchange number 14 is launching C2 or something like that. And, you know, I'm talking to sell side sales and traders and they're like, what? They don't know that there's a new exchange. They don't actually care that there's a new exchange. The technology has solved it, right? They're like, no, I just put it into my router. I don't know 
I trust that the people that have designed it are maximizing liquidity and optimizing the fees that I'm paying and the rebates I'm getting and all this kind of stuff. So there used to be a, our, our nine exchanges too many panel at these conferences. Now we're at 16 and they don't even ask the question anymore. There was a little bit of a debate about it between SIBO and MyAx. MyAx has got the last three. They launched MyAx and then Pearl and then Emerald. I think you'll see 20 exchanges before you see 10, okay? They may all be owned by three operators, but... So looking forward, it's funny, the, the panel with Thomas Petterfee and Blair Hull, it ended up, it was a lot of them telling their stories about what it was like to trade through 87 and what they'd kind of witnessed in the, the electronification of things. They were asked like, well, so where do you see this market going? You have this kind of issue where auctions are taking or siphoning away a lot of the order flow that kept kind of the traditional market makers and liquidity providers alive. And now the banks are kind of internalizing more and more. You got this war between, you know, PFOF and not. And they both were like, well, I don't know. <laughs> they had no, they had no kind of like, yeah, this is what you guys should do. I think that you're spot on in terms of the technology available to traders from retail up to hedge fund and, and sell side, just continually getting better. I mean, the ability to, you want to trade a butterfly, you just basically with a few clicks, define it and throw it into a complex order book. And somebody else is evaluating that as a butterfly and pricing it. So you're not looking at the bid offer on three legs and everything else. It becomes incredibly efficient. And I think that you're going to continue to see innovation in terms of products, more ETFs, maybe some of these actively managed things. I mean, there's a lot of talk, you know, even on some of your content about this passive money, you know, everybody's kind of like, have we hit the, the end yet? I think the people will come up with some products that will kind of try to take advantage of the shifts that may come. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, you know, flex options for me have always been a, an interesting thing to follow. The first quarter of 2019 was a record for flex volume. It's always seems to be like, oh, this could be the year that flex really takes off. And then by the end of the year, it's just kind of another one or 2% of the total market volume. But you could see something there where make those things easier to trade, make them more transparent, and you'll pull some volume. The OTC world is super opaque, and some people like it that way. The vanilla listed world is relatively transparent, becomes a much more, it may inconvenience some participants when things are transparent, but in the end, it's a better market, you know, and I believe that. And so flex is kind of in the middle. And if you make it easier to trade without overdoing it and making it 100% listed, you could see some big growth there too. That's a great point. You get the specificity and the customization, whether it's strike price or expiration date, but you still are tethered to that framework of listed options in terms of the OCC and counterparty intermediation. Right. And I think that's uh, quite valuable. Henry, this has been a great discussion. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for stopping by. All right. Thanks, Dean. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.